Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about treasury in M&A transactions with Harold Fritsch from Deloitte. Harold is passionate about treasury that really comes across in this episode. As a leading partner for Global Treasury Advisory Services at Deloitte in Germany, he advises companies across all sectors on all aspects of corporate treasury with a unique specialization in M&A. Deloitte offers treasury advisory service to more than 600 practitioners globally and over 250 in EMEA, covering treasury transformations and M&A, treasury technology, including SAP, treasury, as well as strategic and managed services. In this episode, expect to learn what is M&A and how does it impact companies? What are the critical success factors for treasury departments during the transitions? What are the primary responsibilities of treasurers when they have to prepare for a carve-out? Insights into optimizing banking structures and relationships after an M&A and bank relationships throughout the whole process. And of course, much more. Harold was absolutely amazing. We learned so much about all the different types of M&A and what a treasurer's role is in each side of the transaction, such as if you're the merging company, if you're the acquiring company, if you're in the carve-out, if you're carving out. It was a true masterclass with Harold. We hope you enjoy the episode. If that's the case, then when you were thinking about how you found our podcast, chances are it was either through word of mouth, social media, or recommendation from one of the algorithms on one of your platforms. And to help that, our only request to you is help others find us too. And you can do that by going off and subscribing to our YouTube channel at Corporate Treasury 101, which would mean the world to us and help a lot more people find our content and learn about treasury. And with that, please welcome Harold Fritsch. Harold, welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Really great to have you on. We'd like to start broad with your expertise uh, in Deloitte specifically and where mergers and acquisitions fits into Treasury. So starting a little bit broad first, what is M&A and how does it impact companies? Well, thanks uh, you guys for having me. Uh, really pleasure uh, to discuss that, that quite exciting topic on yeah, and M&A and, and Treasury. So, I mean, what is M&A? I mean, M&A is a broad term. Of course, you're all aware it's mergers and acquisitions, nothing too fancy. But of course, in the treasury landscape, it, it really depends on, on which side of the table you're sitting. Yeah? So typically what we're looking at is the acquisition from a buyer perspective. So you're taking over a company, you're typically integrating treasury, but also from a seller perspective. Yeah? So either you're taken over or parts are taken over. And, and the third one, which is which is quite important and has become quite um, often used in the last years, like carve-outs or spin-offs. Yeah, so in terms of redefining the overall company strategy, um, you think about getting the selling part of the business, you build a small group and you typically um, yeah, do a carve-out sell that you need to build up a new treasury, so quite an, quite an important area. And yeah, every now and then we see mergers, typically, you know, the big ones in the past, mergers of equals, um, where of course then it is typically not 100% equal. Um, but then you need to see how you kind of uh, set up your treasury going forward. So that's all the aspects we would see under under M and A generally. Typical. So you've got the acquire company, the acquirer, spin-off, mergers. All of those, I'm sure, bring their own unique treasury 
challenges, right? If you're being acquired as a treasurer, you're like, okay, how does that impact me? If I'm acquiring another company, how does that impact my treasury? If I'm merging, that must be very different. What does what happens to the treasury department when the company goes through a merger or acquisition? Well, as you correctly said, it, it really depends on the scenario you're in. Um, I think in common are really the dimension that you need to tackle. Yeah? No matter if you're divesting, if you're acquiring, um, it's always kind of a, a handful of, of dimensions. So typically it's around strategy and organization. So um, is the, does the strategy still fit? Uh, if you buy a new business, new company, new business model, you might need to change your, your uh, strategy of treasury. Um, is your organization still fitting? Not just from a size perspective, but also from a geographical fit perspective, for example. Um, you typically need to adjust your governance structure, guidelines, policies, and so on. Um, then it comes to people and talent. It becomes more and more important um, retaining talent, yeah, uh, keeping the good people, but still then having an efficient team. Um, it's all about, about process setup and keeping processes stable around cash, risk, liquidity, basically across the board. Technology is typically a big thing, and I think we're going to talk about that later. I mean, if you do an acquisition, it's typically two systems. That's not too efficient going forward, of course. So it's always to be thought about what, what's the way ahead. And lastly, not, not the most fun part to do, but typically it's a lot of contractual aspects that need to be taken care of. It's new internal contracts, new banking contracts. You have change of control clauses in financing and the like. So quite a bit of stuff um, along those dimensions that need to be tackled, no matter let's say which M and A scenario you're in. So there seem to be quite some impacts. Obviously, what are the typical risks that treasury departments face when a merger or acquisition or carve out or spin off happens? Well, I mean, I think risks are twofold. One is typically um, there's limited time, there's limited resources, and there's a lot of work. Uh, um, so, I mean, sounds familiar. Yeah, well, <laughs> classic, 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 and in project, but in M&A, I mean, typically because I mean, M&A timelines are defined by the M&A, the, the the board, and you kind of need to adhere to that. So that is typically the biggest challenge, and therefore also risk. Treasury is kind of responsible for payment readiness, that the group has sufficient funding and financing, that you can do your hedging. And I mean, having all that at risk, I think is, 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 are the key risks to be really payment and financing readiness. Um, as of day one, I would determine as, as the other, the core risks. Okay, makes, makes a lot of sense. So what are the typical adjustments that Treasury departments need to to make because of those risks, but because of overall what's happening. I think the timeline is something you mentioned that is pretty, pretty important, especially when it comes to system implementations, re rethinking of the structure and so on. So what are the adjustments that Treasury needs to make in these circumstances? Yeah, I mean, as, as I said earlier, it, it, it depends a bit on, on the scenario we are, we're looking at. But I mean, one of the, the biggest, typically organization and people, yeah, so typically you either split off your team or you acquire a team. So the question of how to set up your organization, your processes, your people, uh, your regional treasury centers, where you 
you have one in Singapore, you acquire one in Bangkok, you need to think about the whole, let's say, target operating model around around people. I would say that's that's key, especially to retain the right talent. I said earlier, not, not to lose the key people along the road. Secondly, it's technology, I would say, really, um, and, and using, well, that, that change as a, as a chance, right, um, for, for a bigger transformation to optimize processes, organization, and so on. And typically, technology plays a big role in that, that environment. And last, change-wise, is, is financing slash banking. So typically, M&A comes with quite some change in financing. You either need new financing in a carve-out, you need to replace financing in an acquisition, you need to internalize certain financing from the external side, and you typically have 100 banks already and you acquire another 100, uh, um, which is, again, not ideal. So it's, it's quite a, a lot of work typically to, to harmonize the bank landscape there as well. Quick question on that financing aspect. This is, as you said, there is lots and lots of contractual uh, considerations, right? But typically the, the funding part is not only anchored for two, three, four, five years in the ca case of a revolving credit facility, for instance, but you're also drawing into it. So well, we're going to get into much more details further than this episode, but I'm curious to understand how it works when both companies, the acquiring one and the acquired one, both have funding maybe for overlapping functions how does it typically go there well it, it's typically indeed the, the case that the the acquiring company in the first place takes over the debt of the to be acquired company but then well to the extent well contractually possible yeah refinances that uh, so basically gets rid of the, the debt uh, to the extent possible now of course in the bond market that's not always possible you need to have call options or convertible options or what have you in some bilateral bank contracts you have change of control clauses which allow you to to terminate that is quite a quite a big thing also on the legal lawyer side to be looked into how that can be optimized quite fast going forward um, especially as the acquiring company typically has already established like the big acquisition financing, including a bridge loan and, and all those facilities in place. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's of yeah. course, one very important thing is, is on financing and funding. In all of those um, risk factors, Harold, I mean, when you come in as Deloitte and you come into, uh, you're consulted on, hey, look, we're, let's say, acquiring this uh, company in the U.S., small company, whatnot, what is the one make or break factor that you're like, okay, this is the one thing that we need to make sure we get right. And I've seen it again and again, if we get this one thing wrong, the treasury department is, is just done for it. So you're in a crisis mode. What's the one? I mean, the one is being able to pay. And with that come, of course, two, three dimensions. Um, I mean, if, uh, if a corporate Pay for the sorry, pay for the company or pay your staff ongoing, like pay the new staff or like actually fund the the deal. No, it's it, it's actually I mean, typically funding the deal. I mean, is 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 negotiated by the big M and A banks, and you typically have your funding in place. Otherwise, the, the contract is typically not signed. Doesn't have going forward. No. It, okay. It's uh, paying your suppliers, it's paying your employees, it's play, paying your rent, which sounds simple and easy. But if you think about now, for example, in the carve-out scenario where you need to establish uh, new bank accounts, uh, bank relations across the world, globally, with 
50 different payment formats, 20 different ERP systems, no time, limited knowledge, then being able to do a, a mass payment becomes becomes difficult. Yeah. And linked to that, of course, you need to have adequate funding in place. Also, I mean, typically centrally not a problem, but you have a lot of regulated countries that need to pay salaries and, and suppliers. So they need to have local credit lines, local funding that needs to be set up. For example, in a cover scenario where you have a newly established entity. So I would say everything on the, yeah, being able to, to pay um, related to funding is, is, is the one thing. If that uh, is not working, then basically the whole, I mean, the, the, technically speaking, if you're not, you're, you're running into bankruptcy. So that is quite an, quite an, <laughs> quite an issue to be tackled. I mean, yeah, maybe I should be more specific with my question, but because you took it down an interesting route yourself. I mean, the spin-offs, for example, it just means, okay, not only are you, you have to set up a completely legal entity and then separate bank accounts, separate revenue streams, separate everything out and parse everything out that maybe before was a bit more blurry and mixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no, exactly. I mean, that, that, that's exactly the case. So in that carve scenario, you, you establish a new entity, you need to do the full KYC, bank account, payment, readiness, connectivity, so that, that that's that's of course huge. I mean, in, in terms of acquiring, yeah, I would indeed say it's, it's the funding and then the orchestration of paying, uh, so especially if you're talking, I don't know, five, six, 10, 20 billion, orchestrating that those funds are on the escrow accounts on the day that you need the money, get that all orchestrated is of course, I mean, you're, you're heavily supported by the, by the banks related to that, but it's still quite some orchestration related to that required. Interesting. Okay, so let's let's break this down a little bit into each scenario, <clears throat> Harold, if you don't mind, where we uh, look at so the treasurer's role in each of these M&E scenarios. So starting with company acquisitions. So as a treasurer, if my company is looking to acquire another, what are my main considerations I need to make as a treasurer and my main responsibilities? I mean, that typically starts quite early in due diligence related activities. Yeah. So typically treasury is involved quite early in the due diligence process when the data room from the to be acquired companies are being opened in terms of cash flow situation, funding situation, guarantees and the like. So that's typically when, when treasury first plays a role. Once let's say the deal gets clearer, it's the whole thing on funding. Yeah, how can we fund the purchase price? Typically, it's not cash in the bank, right? So typically, it's quite a structure where you typically have a bridge loan, which is then uh, replaced by longer term funding, like bonds um, or the like on, on the funding side. And with that comes, of course, risk management related aspects. In many situations, purchase prices are being paid in non-functional currency. Yeah, you take over an entity in the US, you have dollar, where dollar fluctuations might lead to an increase of the price by quite a lot of millions in euro equivalent. So hedging that is, is an issue where you typically then use FX deal contingent forward. So basically FX forward, which are linked to a to an event uh, like an acquisition. But also on the interest rate side, of course, especially looking at current interest rates, that was not that much of an issue maybe seven or five years ago, but in, in recent years it has become more and more important, of course, um, having interest rate risk management and the strategies in place. 
and that attempt is set on the coordination of the purchase price payment itself. But that is, of course, all prior to closing. Yeah? So that's all preparational activities, if you like. Yeah? And then afterwards, it's really typically the short-term replacement of the funding from the target and then starting to get transparency on risks, on cash, on, on banks and the like. So typically having that transparency in place it's very important where quite some corporates work with it or M&A advisors as we are in as a clean team approach where you already have, have a team which is basically analyzing that information prior to, to closing already. And then you have indeed the whole integration process project basically on people, organization processes, contracts and the like, but which is, yeah, depending on size and complexity takes, yeah six months up to three years after uh, depending on on speed and complexity yeah so quite a lot of aspects starting early but typically also taking quite a while after closing until everything is really fully done an interesting one that you just mentioned how does it i guess it links to the treasury policy of the acquiring company but do you typically determine fx hedging budget for acquisitions like do you hedge 100% of the transaction, only part of it. What if the actual transfer takes more time? And that's typical in the M&A circumstances because of contractual issues and considerations and so on. So how does the hedge of such a big transaction, because we are often looking at, well, company's value. So that's pretty substantial. How does it work? It, it is pretty substantial indeed. And I mean, there's no golden 100% correct way. From what we've experienced is it's really kind of related to the probability that the deal will occur correlating to the probability you increase your hedge ratio. Yeah. So at an early stage, you typically don't start any, any hedging yet. Uh, you basically, once you have a first business plan calculation where then the result is, is a potential purchase price and you have process in negotiations turn certain exempt they typically enter into into hedging especially on the fx side but as i said typically on those deal contingent forwards which of course basically imply that the rate you get is probably a tiny bit worse than than if you wouldn't but if the deal for whatever reason it might be uh, is not happening um, you're not obliged to fulfill the deal but it basically ceases to exist. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that uh, the deal contingent FX hedging forward, sorry, was existing. That's amazing. So you still pay a little fee, I guess, right? The bank, well, whatever the institution you're dealing with, won't do, do all that for free. It's a risk. It's an exposure. The other way around as well. So how does it how does it work? You just pay a small fee and you're like, okay, the deal didn't go through, so sorry. But you still get a bit of money out because of this or no i mean it, it's typically basically integrated into the fee quotation already right so all right that's that, that's what i meant with basically uh the small margin of of yeah risk quotation compared compared to okay the standard market sorry going a bit down the rabbit no, hole no, but, uh, i was super curious <laughs> next sense <laughs> so we already quickly touched upon the, our next point, which is around funding, liquidity, and risk management. You mentioned that you need to make sure the, like the key success criteria, success factor is um, 
being able to pay everybody. It also mentions how it works typically in the funding part, like typically the acquiring company would repay the debt of the acquired company, just to make sure we don't overlook anything. Like, is there anything else uh, that treasurers should consider when they approach funding, liquidity, and risk management in the context of, acqui of an acquisition? But maybe we can also break it down in, as you mentioned, acquisition, being acquired, merger, uh, spin-off, carve-outs, all those, all those scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, of really being acquiring party, uh, I think a lot we, we've already been discussing. I think once the acquisition has been completed, uh, as I said earlier, it's a lot of, of transparency and transparency on cash, cash forecasting, liquidity, sustainable cash flows in order to repay acquisition debt. That's key, and that's one of the, let's say, closing plus 100 days activities that definitely typically need to be need to be established secondly it's, it's transparency on risk management to understand fx exposures understand currency exposures integrate that into your hedging policy but as said sometimes the existing hedging policy does not necessarily fit yeah so for example you're currently doing 80 percent project business yeah but you acquire product business, which has a different risk horizon, different possibilities to adapt prices to currency rate fluctuations and the like. Um, so you probably have a different hedging horizon. You have a different hedging ratio. So um, there's quite often the case that you need to adapt your hedging policy to be more differentiated in case you have basically yeah, acquired a bit of heterogeneous business. On, on the go yeah and as said on, on funding i mean the typical thing is that you try to internalize as much funding as possible uh, get rid of everything external of course there's always the limitations on regulated countries india brazil china you name it where you need to have your local funding in place but everything else typically is, is internalized and uh, replaced then by by internal funding hmm. So cash visibility, cash flow forecasting, making sure you have a proper view on everything. That makes me think of systems. And from a previous experience in treasury system integrations as well, I know how messy it can be just looking at one company. So let alone in a merger and acquisition scenario. So beyond the just explaining how important it is, because I suspect it is very much important, how does it all work? The integration of treasury systems and operations in an acquisition scenario? I mean, I would say typically in an acquisition scenario, it's even the, the easier case, if you can, if you can call that easy. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's still not easy. Yeah. Uh, some of my clients will probably call me crazy if I say that's easy. But uh, I, I would say at least in terms of decision-making. Because of course, you typically have this, this situation to companies, to systems. But it's typically not only to systems, but it's really to landscape consisting out of various systems. But in the acquisition scenario, it's typically the case that that a to be to be acquired company is integrated and at a certain point in time shuts down the, the old legacy system. Yeah, so that it ceases to exist and they're basically integrated into the acquirer system just as a matter, matter of time and priority, but typically that is approached quite fastly to be integrated. It of course gets more interesting if we're, let's say, having really huge acquisitions and or mergers, 
where we're more talking about 50-50, 45-55 in terms of company size and complexity, because then the question arises, well, is it is the right system the one, the other, or even a third one? And that's where, well, based on my experience, not necessarily only objective decision-making plays a role, but, but internal politics do. Yeah. Where, um, I mean, and that's where we come in quite often to really from an outside in objective perspective, compare the one with the other, first of all, gather the functional and technical requirements of the newly combined um, entity, challenge everything which is typically referred to as historically grown. So, I mean, if you ask someone, why are you doing that process so complicated? The answer is that it's historically grown. That's that's always not a good answer, but it is quite frequently. <laughs> so what we typically try to do is really start with a fit to standard approach. Uh, we we come with a, a more or less 80% system standard or process standard and try to bring that into the game and then use that as a starting point. Yeah. Um, but that's of course, that, that's a lot more exciting um, also than in terms of, of change management once decided how to implement. And in the third scenario, if you're carving out certain parts, uh, it depends, and I think we get to that later, but it depends then on the bio scenario, but typically that to be carved out entity needs a new system. Yeah, so it's then really kind of a greenfield approach uh, starting from scratch. Yeah, and then you typically uh, select a new system based on company's requirements. Sticking with the scenario where I'm the treasurer of a company that's acquiring another smaller entity, I'll ask you the same question again. This is going to be my favorite question to you every time, Harold. What's the one thing that treasurers get wrong when they go and to acquire? Is it my guess? And tell me if I'm wrong or not. Is that they go and they say, "Yeah, of course they're just going to come onto my system, and just plug them in over there in the back, and it's plug and play." Yeah, it's it's. I would say it's overestimating synergies and underestimating integration costs and time, which is basically what you said. Yeah. <laughs> um, but said much better. But, but, <laughs> but it's, you can tell who's the professional consultant. Yeah, here. but, it's, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's true. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's in very rare cases, plug and play. Yeah. It is a lot of change management and that is also related to it so it's it's not ignoring but underestimating cultural integration yeah i mean you can always plug or roll out your system but if the people are resistant to change and don't understand why it's never gonna gonna happen uh, that goes then also with the importance of communication uh, across the project and that all kind of leads to as you correctly said the integration cost and timeline is to 70% of projects underestimated um, and therefore synergy is overestimated, which then, yeah, it's not always a, a good situation to deal in if you need to kind of realize synergies quite, quite fast down the, down the road. Yeah. I mean, so going back to what you said about, um, payments and, and we'll get to the carve outs and the, and whatnot scenarios later, but. Um, again, sticking to if I'm a treasurer acquiring a company, right? Um, being able to pay for that new company. I mean, I guess it was working as a standalone entity. 
so you have a bit of the transition shouldn't it shouldn't fall apart in the transition ideally unless some other business dynamics get affected due to the acquisition but i mean it was making its own payments before it was paying its rent it was paying its bills it was paying its staff and whatnot in real in theory it could probably sustain itself until all that gets mixed into your pot uh under one payroll eventually i guess right like is that because i'm just touching on it because you mentioned it earlier is that ever a consideration in an acquiring situation? No, that's, that's right. That's typically in an acquiring situation should not, should not screw up. I mean, as you said, it's been working in the old. I mean, yes, during transition, there might be issues, but it's typically not, not, not a big issue. That's really the, the, the carve-out situation. I mean, the, the risk you're, you're having in, in acquisition scenarios is that, I don't know, from the acquire, uh, to be acquired company, you have like a six-people treasury team and because of the acquisition, your three, four key players leave the company, especially in countries where your notice period is not three or six months, but two weeks. That can really cause, cause issues and trouble. And I had that in the past quite, quite often, that especially if U.S. companies are acquired, people simply very quickly leave and then suddenly you have, and they might not have a proper system, so you have you're losing all transparency. You have no idea about risk, which I mean, it, it will not jeopardize the deal, nor will it jeopardize the existence of the company. But until you have that back in order in terms of proper risk, understand the fixed results and the like, it's, it's quite a lot of more time than, than one would, would think. Yeah. So also that talent retention communication, depending on cultural aspects, is quite key. It sounds quite soft factor, and it is, but it can become a hard factor quite fast if it's not done sufficiently. Yeah. I mean, a company is just a group of people that are working on something together, right? And if the people fall apart, then the company falls apart more or less. But I mean, the so I mean, because we did, we didn't discuss going into this, but I'm interested. What's how do you keep the people around? Is there any way you can? I mean, if someone decides to leave, they decide to leave, right? But at the end of the day, if all the risks are indeed in their head, they knew what was going on. It wasn't in a proper system, in a proper TMS, all there, ready to go to the next person. It was really, you had a couple all-stars, which a lot of companies follow the 80-20 principle, right? 20% of people do 80% of the work. So like, if those 20% of the people leave, and if your treasury department's five people, and that's one of them, right? They're not too good. <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> then it's not a great scenario. So is there... Is that when you go into an M and A scenario, like do you just do you ever come in and go like, who are your key players as an acquirer, right? You're the acquirer hired you to make this smooth. You go to the company being acquired. You say, who's your key person? How do we bump him a, pa a fat paycheck that keeps him around or anything like this? Well, well, no, you, you, you're joking, but I mean, to a certain extent, that is, well, it's, it's... <laughs> that is a conversation that happens. <laughs> the, well, that, that's not necessarily fully true, but. I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, we, we typically work with our, um, we have an HR consultancy team that goes in into that area, but indeed there is an analysis being done on key players. Yeah. From an outside in perspective, but of, secondly, talking to senior management of the, of the to be acquired company. And then indeed there is in terms of variable payments, there is of course a linkage saying if you stay closing plus two years, two years, whatever it is, yeah, there's a certain extra bonus payment related to that. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, money is not everything. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that all people are staying, but of course it, it incentivizes um, people people staying. I mean, that's, that's from a monetary perspective, but of course, in terms of communication, you can also, um, yeah, build a joint vision of a newly uh, built corporate out of one and two, which needs uh, a bigger treasury team, which needs specialized treasury operations in certain regions and come up, let's say, with, with job opportunities uh, without maybe clearly allocating them, but just making up a, a growing vision and not necessarily which, which most people have in their heads is synergies, is cost cutting, is laying off people. But from my experience in treasury, that is not so frequently the case because the teams are not that big. Yeah, I mean, if you have 800 people working in accounting, that's a different story. But if it's six or seven in treasury, the cost savings are relatively small in, in, in absolute euro terms. Does it ever go up? So have you ever seen, seen a situation in an acquisition where uh, the acquiring company has, let's say, five treasurers, the to-be-acquired company has two treasures, but in the end you end up with 10 because you realize that, okay, it's just the complexity, the new complexity just requires more roles. Or does it always stay flat or go down? Maybe a stupid question. No, I, I mean, I, um, I would say staying flat or going down is the normal case where it's slightly going down. I mean, I, I, in that small example you did, it's probably stable is the right uh, answer. But if you're talking 30 plus 20, then probably going down a bit. Um, but I've seen cases, and that's especially if you were just saying if it's like 10 people and two, where that to be acquired company was simply operating totally different. Yeah. They were not doing liquidity planning. They had no in-house bank. They had no payment factory and what have you. And when they now apply all the new processes, they just need more, more people. Yeah. So that's, can, can be the case, but it's, it's in rare cases, yeah. Probably in a scenario where indeed the to-be-acquired company's treasury just wasn't that good uh, to start with, or indeed there was a lot of opportunities for savings which they weren't taking, and then when they get acquired, they said, okay, actually, you've got two treasures, but maybe you need four because we want to start doing FX hedging better. We want to start doing uh, better cash flow forecasting to mitigate our debt better, uh, improve our working capital, etc. right? So that may be... Those scenario where that happens. Very interesting. So I'll come to a one that's arguably a little bit more interesting, spin-offs, all right? So if I'm a treasurer um, that is, uh, and my company has decided to spin off a department to become its own little entity, do I just forget about it and let it fend for itself? Or how do I, how does that get managed? Well, unfortunately, typically the CFO tells you uh, that you're in charge of building something up. So it's difficult to get out of responsibility there. <laughs> Um, but yes, I mean, it depends a bit on the material, materiality of the business to be sold, but typically indeed the treasurer is in charge to build something up for the to be sold part. I mean, also there typically you get a, either someone of the team steps up and says he wants to be treasurer of the new part or someone externally with experiences is hired to, to build it up. And then, I mean, the, the interesting situation is at least in, in I would say, 90% of the cases, the board decides to spin off certain business. 
with, of course, the uncertainty of the buyer scenario. So, or the exit scenario, if you like. So is it financial investor, private equity, venture capital? Is it a strategic investor? So competition or someone complementing its portfolio? Or is it even an IPO? All, all possible. But of course, it then also depends on what you need from a treasury perspective. So if the target scenario is private equity or financial investor, you typically need a full end-to-end treasury because you're operating independently. You just have a financial investor. On the other hand, if you, a strategic investor acquires you, let's say, competition, then it's 80 90% the case that your treasury will be integrated. So you don't need your treasury anymore. And then IPO is similar to a financial investor. You need to have your full treasury operations. So what we typically recommend is no matter where you're going, start with building up the basics, uh, a basic treasury, small team with uh, consultants, temporarily hire managed services that you don't build up permanent staff to a big extent at an early stage do the basics on payments and so on. And then once it's decided which route to go, yeah, you can still, let's say, do the, do the remaining left and right pieces where the strategic investor, you would probably stop building up for a financial investor. You would then put in a lot of manpower to get the last steps done to be really fully operational and, and, um, and independent. Uh, so that, that really depends, but in any case, the treasurer of, um, let's say the, the mother company is always in charge and then typically strongly advising the new, the new entity, at least until signing to help, um, have that established because of, of course, after all, it's also in his, in his goal achievement from a CFO perspective to, to have a successful spinoff. What are those basics of treasury? Um, Harold, that you would say that a spin-off company should always be born with, let's say. What would you say is the bare minimum that every spin-off needs to have established? Uh, again, it, it, and here what we discussed earlier is, is really payment readiness, but that's really in a basic way. So having your bank account, having your electronic banking, and uh, being able to process, process payments. Now, we're not talking about a centralized payment factory or an in-house bank or something like that, but just being being ready to pay. Uh, having the funding in place in regulated countries as well as centrally. And that, of course, goes very closely to the bio scenario yeah, on, on, on how you approach that. And being able to at least hatch on a central level the core risks on typically FX. I would say those are, are the must-haves, and for that you need to have a very basic system or a set, and there's a, there's a tendency towards that to have a service partner that offers managed services, operates services that can help you bridge that time. Yeah, um, so for example, we're also um, supporting clients in bringing people in, bringing a system in to help him for the first quarter or two, yeah, until he has, has stabilized and has hired sufficient people to, to get it get it up and running. But it's, I think, again, around payment readiness, financing readiness, and hedging readiness that are the, the must-haves to have in place. 
And so to follow up on that, have you seen scenarios where do not want to sing praise of treasury too much, but have you seen scenarios where strategic investors or PE firms are like, guys, you should, I mean, this operation is happening only in the treasury department. It's at this stage upon, acquire, upon acquiring or like saying, guys, your payment landscape is just not up to speed or up to the standards. Like, is it a consideration even when it comes to the negotiations and all the due diligences that are done, the treasury considerations? Well, there, there are, but right in terms of, of transparency, funding structure, guarantees how many, you know, um, performance bonds and what have you, um, you have outstanding in terms of contingent liabilities. So it's more how you structure and manage it. It's less on whether you have, I don't know, 20 banking partners or 30. I mean, yes, that implies cost savings, but from an overall deal perspective, it's too nitty gritty. Yeah. And so to borrow Hussam's favorite question, although I feel you've already answered to it a bit with the, with the basics of treasury that needs to be up to speed, what are the key priorities? What are the nobis that treasurer should focus on uh, in a karma process? Yeah, I mean, if, if we really look from the perspective of the guy that needs to build up the treasury, I would really try to get get helping hands from wherever uh, you can, yeah, internally, externally, from the former um, former treasury team, and then really focus on those core core priorities. Because just the contracting on on banks, on KYC, um, on FX lines, on ISA agreements, on guarantee lines. That itself is filling days and nights and weeks of work without thinking about an efficient process. So I would really get get all hands operational on, on the ground and yeah, start working and really then focus on optimizing things yeah, later on because it will just not, not happen. Makes sense. Who usually takes that role? Is it somebody from the previous treasury team who gets a kind of promotion say, okay, now you're group treasurer of this carve out or is it better to get somebody from the outside world to come and take that function who would be specialized into treasury transformation or treasury revamping or even treasury not transformation but setup because it's everything has to be done how does it typically work i would say twofold twofold i mean for the very big corporations the spin-off parts typically someone internally takes up that role you then typically have quite big treasury teams of 50 plus people. And that offers, of course, quite a nice career opportunity as you're, let's say, moving out of a certain department where you're a bit more of a niche player into a really broad role of, of corporate treasury. Whereas if your treasury team is only 10 people or 15 people, typically it's, it's rather someone is hired externally also because the treasurer does not yeah, necessarily want to free up someone because he's scarce on resources anyhow. And there we see quite uh, hiring of, of external uh, candidates and also there twofold. I mean, there's a market of quite experienced treasurers that have done that in the past, where which are always kind of willing to move and take on the next challenge of, of IPO or what have you, or it's, it's even to bridge the, the resource gap because you typically do not have time to look for someone for six, nine, 12 months 
then the deal is half over. So you also look into the interim market or the consultancy market that you, you find a small team or people that can take over and, and start the activities already. Right. What are the typical skills that are required? Because I'm thinking, do you want a, an absolute machine in cash and liquidity management and FX hedging management? Or do you want somebody who has change management background, um, who knows how to transform stuff, who knows how to lead team to build something from scratch? I guess both of uh, both of worlds, but best of both worlds, sorry. But so what's the what are you looking for in somebody who will take on that role in a car out? I mean, as I said, ideally best of both worlds, but that's that, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's typically you know, the difficulty where you don't find the people at short notice. I think the super deep technical skills, I don't know, on payment formats and what have you is not priority one. I would really say priority one is a good orchestrator, treasury generalist and manager who can really steer change, manage change, do quick decisions and be really take, take ownership of the whole, whole um, process. Yeah. That's, that's more important to be, yeah, to have that profile rather than all the, the nitty gritty details, which you can somewhat hire or buy at the market that expertise, but someone who also then knows how to manage the other stakeholders, like your CFO, your head of accounting, your head of IT, the banks, uh, system providers, lawyers, M&A boutiques, uh, that's quite a big, big environment you're acting in. So it's, it's better to have those. Yeah, management orchestration skills than the than the technical details of treasury. Okay, Harold, bring us to like I think probably the hardest of the various scenarios, um, which is if I'm a company being acquired and I'm the treasurer of a company being acquired. Um, what are my key responsibilities there? I'm guessing a lot of internal politics come into play here, but trying to keep that. We'll get to that. Let's start maybe with the objective roles. And then what you've seen <laughs> in your experience. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing is indeed, and I think history has, has shown or if you would do like a, a statistical view on, on how those deals ended up in the past, that typically once you're acquired and it's a central function like, like Treasury is, and it's typically quite centralized. Yeah, you're working in the integration, but you, you would, team and your department at a certain point in time ceases to exist. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just fact and reality. Yeah. Um, which does not mean that for the individual, there's not room for, for career or, or further development. Um, definitely not the case, but it, it really means that, um, typically you need to position yourself indeed quite well and openly be proactive and Yes, sell yourself, if you like, yeah, sell yourself to the new group treasurer, to the CFO in, in playing an important role because, I mean, typically where also integrations fail is not having the right managers of the, of the acquired company because they're leaving, they're, they're laid off, and then you have no one really managing the integration itself. Yeah, that's, that's where we see a lot of integrations failing. So those people are key and not, or we see this quite often that they get quite interesting roles in the new organization. 
yeah, it doesn't necessarily need to be treasury, it can be broader finance, can be regional treasury heads, um, or, or what have you. So quite a, a yeah, diverse picture. But um, of course, as a matter of fact, the, the importance of having your own department reporting to the CFO, yeah, it's just a matter of time until this, this will not be in place anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah, so you're no longer the group treasurer in that scenario, I guess, or the treasury lead in whatever role you were. Um, but I mean, so some treasurers, I guess, in that scenario will have um, the intrinsic, let's say, motivation and the love for the what they've built or their team or whatever to make sure that transition happens as as smoothly as possible, right? So from a treasury perspective, how do you manage that and as a, as someone that does want to stick around and does want to do or is incentivized to for whatever reason, right? They're told, hey, if you manage the transition, you get this role, which is still a very good one in a bigger company, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how does that, what are the what are the actual technicalities of being acquired as a treasury department? Yeah, uh, I think it is, it's, it's a lot on proactivity. So explaining the, the acquiring company your setup, your treasury, being transparent on financials in terms of cash, liquidity, risks, how you're handling certain activities, what's your setup, what's maybe also innovation things you've done in the past. Uh, if you worked on, I don't know, AI forecasting, have you implemented a small RPA? Have you done an API to a bank recently? You know, all the technology buzzwords currently flying around where maybe you're even more advanced than the, than the acquiring company, yeah? where you can maybe move into know, being the, the innovation officer of treasury. So really being, being proactive is, is, I would say, key. Um, unfortunately, I mean, the, the, the steering wheel is not in your hands anymore. Yeah? So you can try to be active and, and get into the discussion as early as, as possible. But after all, of course, you're depending on on the acquiring part of how they play the game. Harald, we want to get into the nitty-gritty of MA, Treasury Transformation, Technology, Banking Structure. Before that, one last question we have for you. What's your main recommendation? What are the no misses for treasurers undergoing a, an acquisition from another company? What is the critical uh, success criteria here? But uh, position yourself as a value adding partner. Yeah. Um, play an active role in in value creation, in synergy creation. Play an active role in people retention of your own team to make the overall deal uh, a success. Without having the certainty of your personal future in terms of career, yeah, probably not not an easy one, um, not necessarily. But on the other hand, I think the people I know that have been in such a situation, they learn so much during that time, they grow that much, they get so much experience that they, yeah, typically position themselves very well for additional careers outside the company. Mm. I like that a lot. Harold, take us through uh, the treasury technology and banking structure impacts when it comes to M&A. So to begin with, maybe, how does M&A activities impact the treasury's technology infrastructure? And typically here, what system do you look at? What do you overlook? What should be kept? What should be replaced? 
I think you mentioned earlier, maybe it's the third system, third party system that you want to implement because none of them are good. How does it all work here? Yeah, yeah. No, indeed. And I mean, that that's, that's an important area also in terms of synergy generation, typically. Also, this is quite an important part of the business case to kind of um, shut down one of the systems, only have one in place, which of course uh, takes quite some money in terms of licensing and, and administration. So I said, let's say in an, in an acquiring scenario where a really big one acquires a smaller one, then it's typically a low-brainer um, and the, they're, they're simply integrated. It indeed gets more important when they're, they're similar in size, yeah, or, or even if it's, if it's a merger. Then what we typically do is indeed we, we start from a really objective requirements analysis. And I'd say what are really your functional requirements, IT requirements now and in the near future? How can, well, are the, let's say, company-specific required or not? Can we move a bit more into industry standard? And then we perform an, an objective comparison between the two systems and come up with a recommendation for the one or the other. And typically, um, when a third system comes into discussion, is mainly for political reasons. Those decisions are rarely done only objectively, to be honest. There's always the one has the favor for the one system, the other one for the other system. And then sometimes to not losing one of the parties, losing their face, you come up with a third uh, potential system, which is also typically functionality-wise good and maybe easier to say, look, we go a fully different direction. We really use this, this change from an M&A perspective as a transition towards a modern future-proof treasury setup. So we're transforming both parties into something new. So um, we, we see indeed indeed both quite often. Yeah. Although the cost typically being a bit higher if you move to, an, to a third-party system, which was not used by one of the two parties, in the past, but in terms of acceptance, it's sometimes easier yeah, than than the other way around. In a in a carve out scenario, of course, and that's that's always I think why why those projects are, are quite exciting. You basically start on a greenfield approach in, in many cases, so you can really well define your requirements and start um, a system selection from scratch, and um, yeah basically select the system you're looking for, at least let's say if you have sufficient time. If there's limited time, and that's what we've also seen here and there, there's not sufficient time to select and implement a new system. And you typically get a, a copy of the old system. You get rid of all the data that you're not allowed to see. And uh, the functionality, you have a running system, which is typically overscaled and too complex for what you really need and also to to cost intense, so typically then after uh, change of control, this is being being replaced with something, yeah, right fitting and suiting the the treasury operations of the newly established entity. Well, are those um, so those budget and cost considerations are they discussed before the merger or acquisition or carve out happens for the treasury specifically because. Revamping a whole treasury department, if you go for that route, and like you say, okay, guys, it's the perfect opportunity to see where we are right now, see where we want to be, and make sure that we, as of now, start implementing a 
best-in-class type of treasury department. The cost discussion linked to this, are they happening during the M&A discussion itself or once it's decided and it's time for the assessment and we're like, okay, actually we are a bit behind what's uh, happening in the industry. When do you decide? Because I'm obviously thinking, maybe a bit biased, but I'm obviously thinking about consulting costs here. When you come into action and say, okay, we need help to do that. That's what happens in a lot of cases. Are these budgets typically discussed prior to it whilst it's happening or how does it go? Well, they are considered prior, but of course, on a very high level. Um, so typically what is being done is that the M&A and the whole business case team that is basically calculating the, the case, whether it's worth acquiring or not, they plan for integration costs. And part of that is all kind of, well, internal and external costs, whether it's consultancy, whether it's IT service providers, what have you. And there are also certain piece for treasury is, is, is considered, yes. So, but it's not to the extent that, okay, we want to do, I don't know, landscape optimization. We do bank optimization. So we need budget X, Y, Z. It's more like a top-down approach of how to, to allocate uh, budgets then. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, um, Harold, one thing we didn't talk about in all this, which is an incredibly important part of Treasury, is banking relationships and how you manage your relationship with your banks. So, in each of the scenarios, I mean, so if we run through um, acquiring a company, I think that's probably straightforward, right? You just kind of tell your bank. If you're going to synergize on banks, you tell them, hey, look, I need these extra accounts and whatnot, these jurisdictions. Um, but if I'm being acquired, or if uh, setting off a spin-off, that's more business for the bank. That's pretty straightforward. If I'm being acquired then, or in a merger situation where it's a bit more equal, how does those relationships with banks usually go? Do the banks try and peg their horse as quick as they can and then <laughs> try to try to sneak in there? Or or how do you guys manage the banks? Uh, I mean, they, they always want to be part, of course, on the, on the whole M&A deal, but more, let's say, from an advisory structuring funding perspective, but that is typically decided at a, at a quite early point in time. Yeah. But in terms of bank landscape, bank relations, it, it is it is very important from, from various perspectives. Um, so first, if we talk about, let's say, credit or lines for for funding guarantees and FX. I mean, typically if you're a big company, you're acquiring another one, you just add new bank relations, add new lines, um, and then you can basically sort it out afterwards. You typically focus or define like a core banking group of 10 to 20 banks where you do most of your business with, and then you try to harmonize your bank landscape. But there's no super urgency in doing so uh, typically after the acquisition because because you still have it different in a in a spin-off scenario especially if you spin off like sizes of i don't know two three four five six billion uh revenue business then you sometimes have the case where big club uh, big global banks tell you look segment is not really part of my business we'll, we'll still support you but after change of control you should look for for new banking partners now yeah, so that changes the dimension quite a bit we really need to be careful in looking who will be your long-term banking partner also in terms of financing fx lines um, down the road what you typically have then in, in acquisitions is 
you acquire a huge, typically heterogeneous banking landscape in terms of bank accounts and, and payments. And that is quite a big business case to harmonize that globally, uh, where we typically do also banking RFPs structured per region most of the time, and where you can save quite a lot in terms of banking fees, but then of course, overall reduction of bank accounts, if you think about in-house bank and payment factory structures. That's quite a timely process, taking 12 to 24 months to have that all harmonized. But that typically, from a return on invest perspective, uh, pays off quite fast. That's, that's quite important. But I mean, as, as always for Treasury, I, I mean, the banks are one very important factor of the most important partner for corporate treasury, yeah, most likely. So whenever you're approaching M&A activities, I think it's, it's important to start early discussions with the banks on your situation. Of course, you typically then have selected your, your core M&A banks and how certain things are being treated. If you're selling business, is that still supported? What do you do with your financing? So really using that as a trustful partnership relationship, I think is key to manage your, your bank relations. Yeah, although, I mean, at a certain point in time, you might need to also lay off the one or the other bank yeah, because the, the portfolio is just too big. On the other hand, hand that's what the banks do as well. Um, the company gets too small, so I think it's just yeah, somewhat normal course of the business. Um, we haven't talked. We didn't talk about this before. Um, what? How does your credit rating change when you go through a merger or acquisition? Like, I mean, do you have to do both? do the ratings of both parties become invalid and you need to get a new one as a merged entity in, in either scenario? I guess if you're acquiring something small, you can just kind of have a discussion with your ratings agency and it's no problem. But in a merger situation or anything like that, is it from scratch? Do previous ratings make the new ones? Um, do the, the rating agencies take that into account? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, in, as, as you said, in, in small acquisitions, it's typically not playing playing a role. Um, but of course, we had also really big, big acquisitions in the back, which are typically mainly uh, debt funded. Yeah, so where your leverage ratio increases quite a bit, it still looked at it. Let's say if the, the acquisition company buys another one, then typically the rating process follows, not at super short notice, but but afterwards. And you're, of course, also there in frequent discussions with your rating agencies. But I mean, we, we've seen in the past here and there that after big acquisition, a big acquisition, that ratings not just have to be downgraded slightly, yeah, um, giving giving the huge leverage. Um, so that's, that's definitely a case. For, for others, I mean, also we see if you, if you spin off big parts, which are not small, but like also uh, exchange listed, that you also need to look for a new rating, right? Because that part of the entity has never had a rating before. So you need to start approaching rating agencies. You need to build up knowledge and experience. I mean, there are certain triggers in KPIs, right? That, that steer which rating class you'll be, you'll be integrated into. So that's also an, an important aspect if you look at the, at the spin-off side of, of things. Yeah. But it's not that, let's say, uh, rating A or, or entity A has a, just making up a, a triple A and the other, other one has a single B, then the average is double B. That's, that's not how it happens. It's typically the combined entities also 
do not necessarily share the, the, the same um, balance sheet structure. There, there's typically a lot of, in, in such big mergers, a lot of uh, changes to the balance sheet happening in terms of leverage. So typically it's, it's been yeah, reassessed after the, the closing has been taking place. Awesome. Harold, obviously, you know a lot about mergers and acquisitions, especially when it comes to, to treasury transformations. So can you walk us through a little bit how uh, Deloitte assists in treasury transformation during typically all the activities we just mentioned, merger and acquisitions, carve-outs, spin-offs, and whatnot? Sure. I mean, uh, happy to do so. And I mean, as we were discussing in, in the last hours, I mean, there there's a lot of, of activities going on. And we typically also... Um, help along the life cycle. So we start with due diligence support, we do clean team activities, and then it kind of splits up depending on the buyer scenario or the M&A scenario. A lot of times we do indeed support building up treasury organizations and carve-outs from scratch where we support manpower-wise, knowledge-wise, tool-wise to build it up, but mostly also to stabilize after um, signing and closing. We prepare the integration and support the clients in integration um, with our know-how, not only on treasury, but as we touched upon earlier, that the HR related aspects uh, like, like change management um, and the like. Um, but what we're also doing, we are, we're optimizing uh, treasury organizations that more from an financial investor perspective um, during the holding period of a, of a private equity and then also support on, on the exit preparation along the road. Yeah. Um, and what we typically bring, I mean, as I said early, a lot of work, limited time, <laughs> a lot of stakeholders, uh, a lot of requests, of course, to kind of facilitate that over the last years. And, and also with our global team, we have developed quite a lot of accelerators and tools where we have like a transformation toolbox where we have templates on guidelines, on processes, on contracts, on best practice system implementations and the like, just to kind of speed up the process, giving that, I mean, depending, I think the fastest we did was we started the project and three months later, there was change of control. Uh, that was, was, was crazy not to be done anymore, uh, I hope. That was a limited sleep. But then on the other hand, um, there, there's of course longer periods, but it's always uh, quite time uh, tight or tight timeline um, to put up this, yeah. How does, it, how does it work? Do you have a, a client undergoing an acquisition, merger or whatnot, and saying, hey, Harold, this is the deadline. And like, you have to work towards it. Or is it a discussion saying, look, we need to go through this. What's the best way to approach it and how fast can you execute on this? Because as you said, it will typically depend on resources, but also budget. Yeah, we can put 50 analysts on the on the case and it's done in three months uh, or 25 not sleeping a lot. Or we can say, look, this is what we have right now. This is uh, the goal that is realistic and this is what we can work towards. What's the, what's the right balance here and how do the typical projects come in? Unfortunately, 90%, 90% come in with a fixed timeline which is not defined by treasurer, uh, treasury, which is defined by the overall M&A track. So there's limited room for, for negotiation or none. It also, I mean, it's, it's also the case that let's say in 50% of the deals, 
deadlines are being postponed. Yeah, that's, that's also a matter of fact. But that is, in very rare cases, treasury driven. Yeah, this is decided on, on, on a different level. And you mostly need to need to adhere to, to those timelines. I mean, if at a certain point in time in a carve out scenario, treasury would raise the hand and say, we cannot achieve payment readiness, then that would potentially lead to to a shift in, in go live, but that's of course to be avoided at any at any cost. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Can you share a success stories maybe, uh, Harold, of where Deloitte played a pivotal role in transforming a treasury department as a result of an MA activity? Yeah, yes, of course. I mean, I think two thousand twenty a big uh yeah energy company uh went went uh at the ipo and that was indeed the situation was quite a big part um of the entity that was was basically separated and spun off also with quite a tight timeline that was also announced that the the investors they so it had to be worked towards that they started basically with two people um in treasury and had like i don't know a good year to go live so we kind of came in indeed as, as a bigger team across all topics and we started on defining what's our operating model where do we need which people system was important at the beginning because it was clear that this the system of the uh, remaining mother could not be copy pasted so you had to build something up in a, in a complex environment so we started the system selection in a very quick way and then um, work towards that. But payment readiness was also there, their key. And then the full orchestration where you sometimes really think contracts is, is simple, but it's it's not ensuring that, that all the contracting is properly done and signed across the globe in time is, is always always quite a challenge. But we did manage then, then to go live with a, a significant or with the IPO with a significant piece. and. As always, we did then optimizations afterwards. Yeah, so there were still remaining optimization, for example, on reporting. Uh, typically, something you do afterwards, have your nice BI reportings established, things like like that. Yeah. Similar in for an automotive supplier, also two years ago, it was like a seven eight billion part that was was being spun off. Um, also, there uh, tight timeline. Um, where we supported basically end to end from scratch, and there quite interestingly, and there we indeed see a bit of a trend that either transactional activities or more complex activities are there's a tendency to to outsource them not only at a short period of time but longer term, like the hedge documentation, effectiveness calculation, coming up with the postings, yeah. Um, Smaller companies don't have the capacity to, to build up that knowledge, so that is that is being outsourced, or the business administration of the system, you know, setting up new users, uh, keeping user rights up to date. Similar thing where we see more more tendency to, towards. That's quite interesting to see. Yeah, I guess you guys get to you guys see all of the potential post merger acquisition opportunities because you're part of the actual merger acquisition, right? So when you guys come in, it's not just you come in, do the acquisition deal and leave. You come in, do the deal and then drive savings for the client, I guess, in that way, 
right? That makes a lot of sense because you've seen it all. So yeah, yeah, especially um, on the on sense. the integration side. I mean, really realizing those synergies. It's always easy to have them in paper and glossy PowerPoint, but realizing them and making them measurable is, yeah, it's a different page to be tackled. Yeah, totally agreed. Hundred percent. Do you see any um, evolving trends in the overall treasury space for mergers and acquisitions? Anything that you guys are working on Deloitte? Anything that you see that in the future is going to be really, um, really interesting? Or in how deals are being structured, in how debt is working, in, in any of these aspects? I would say nothing too fancy or new on that side, to be honest. Um, that's still quite... Quite I mean, we discussed about things like FX contingent forwards and the like, but but they've been been in place for quite a while. I think it's it's more on speed, so you need to be faster even on on those transactions. So you need to come up with with tools to really be able to have, let's say, standalone readiness uh, quicker and faster. But in M and A, I would not see so many things. I mean, what we see in terms of data, AI, RPAs, and so on, you know, having those those huge models on calculating the business case, the entity and equity value of the corporate. I mean, there we see models evolving rapidly for treasury can be applied to, to um, cash forecasting AI um, aspects. Um, there we see a lot of um, changes already happening now, which is not strictly closely treasury M&A, but in a broader let's say, treasury environment, I would say. So, Claire, Harold, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, there was a real masterclass, and I think a lot of treasurers took away a lot on if they were ever in that scenario, what are they meant to be thinking about? So I think that's going to be super valuable. Is there anything about the topics that we've touched upon that maybe you didn't get a chance to say that you want to add or a nuance you want to bring in that perhaps wasn't covered? No, I think from from my perspective, I think we we covered a lot. I mean, as, as you rightly said, it's it's a huge area. I mean, I can only always say, I mean, M and A implies big uh, changes. Try to take them as a chance uh, for for change for transition to build your future proof treasury. I mean, it's it's rare cases where you have the chance to really, yeah, not not think from scratch, but restructure quite a lot of activities. So try to use that the time to do so. That's, I think, uh, one of the, the key takeaways I have taken over the last yeah, 15 years. Super interesting. And if people want to know more about you, Deloitte, the services that you offer for Treasury, not just in M&A, but generally, uh, where should they go? Well, um, you can find me, of course, on all the uh, social media like, like LinkedIn or, or Xing. I think we can also um, drop the link to our website in the, in the show notes for everyone who's, who's being interested. So. Very much looking forward to discuss all those aspects on Treasury M&A and being, being kind of passionate on Treasury. 100%. Harold, appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. 